The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. As I mentioned last week at the start of Advent, we're in the midst of this Advent season. Uh, and Advent and comes from this Latin word, which translated into English means coming. And it's the coming of Jesus Christ as a man into our world. Jesus, the Son of God, who took on flesh and was born as a baby on that first Christmas. And so Advent is an invitation to spend a month reflecting on the meaning of this Christmas story. And uh, I think this deeper reflection is so important for us because it's a story that's so familiar to us. Um, It's kind of one of the dirty secrets of preachers that Christmas and Easter messages are kind of the hardest messages to prepare for every year. Um, And that's because you're asked to basically revisit the same topic year after year, and preach something different, preach something creative about it over and over again? Uh, What is a fresh perspective that we can bring uh, that hasn't been covered before? Uh, And so it's interesting how often Christmas and Easter become a real challenge to preachers to try to figure out, what should I say this year about this holiday? Not me, of course, but... uh, other preachers, that I, so I've heard, you know. Um, I mentioned last week that uh, um, we were missionaries for five years in Kenya. Um, and we lived in this town called Capswar in the highlands of Kenya for the first four years of our mission work. Some of you might actually recognize this picture because it's the cover photo in my Facebook account. If we're not Facebook friends, I'm sorry, friend me and I will friend you back. Um, our house that we lived in in those years was just to the left of this hill in the center. There's another hill right there, and we lived on the hill just to the left of this photo. Um, During those first weeks in Capsuar, I was just struck over and over again by just the, the sheer beauty of this place. And so I'd be walking around the streets of Capsuar and engage in conversation with the Kenyans, and it was so hard for me to focus on the conversation because everywhere you look, it's like a postcard, you know, and you're just so distracted by the place. But I was equally struck by how the local Kenyans didn't even seem to notice the beauty of the scenery that they were surrounded by. It's amazing, isn't it, how familiarity can blind us to even the most beautiful and inspiring wonders in our world. Paul Tripp writes, familiarity often does bad things to us. Often when we become familiar with things, we begin to take them for granted. When we are familiar with things, we tend to quit examining them. Often when we are familiar with things, we quit noticing them. When we are familiar with things, we tend not to celebrate them as we once did. Familiarity tends to rob us of our wonder. And here's what's important about this. What has captured the wonder of our hearts 
will control the way we live. There's a lot of truth in those words, isn't there? And I wonder if the familiarity of this Christmas season has in essence blinded us to the wonder of this story that God gave us his only son to become a man to live among us so that he could die on our behalf. My sincere hope and prayer is that something of that wonder will be rekindled in our hearts as we spend this Advent season meditating on this Christmas story once again. Last week, we looked at the theme of hope. And today, our focus is on the theme of joy. And this has been a, actually a really tough message for me to prepare, not only because of the familiarity of Christmas, but also because in the fall of 2017, Pastor Peter actually preached uh, a seven-part series on joy. And then last summer, or this summer, right, uh, this past summer, Pastor Chris preached the three-part series on joy. And so after 10 messages, what more needs to be said on joy, you know? I almost just want to tell you guys, go listen to the podcast, you know? And, and that's all you need to really hear on joy. Uh, but Christmas is undeniably filled with the message of joy. It's found in so many of the Christmas carols that we sing during the season. Angels we have heard on high, singing sweetly o'er the plains, and the mountains in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her king. O tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, O tidings of comfort and joy. Joy is an inseparable part of the celebration of Christmas. But what exactly is joy? What I want to do is this, for this message today. I want to first sort of explore joy from a Christian perspective. And then secondly, I want to then examine how the story of Christmas becomes the story of joy in light of that understanding. One of the most common statements that I hear among preachers that are taught preaching on joy is the statement that joy is not happiness. Joy is not happiness. And I kind of have mixed feelings about this statement because I think there's something true about it, but something also that can be misleading about it. Let me unpack that for you a little bit. I think what preachers mean when they say this is that they want to make a distinction between happiness, which we tend to think of as a superficial emotion that is totally dependent on external circumstances. Whatever pleasure we're feeling in that moment, whatever positive circumstances are going our way, we feel happy about it. Whereas joy, from the Christian perspective, is deeper than that. It is not essentially rooted in circumstances, but something deeper. And to that degree, I would agree. In fact, the Bible seems to affirm much of that. If you 
look, Paul gives this interesting chain of commands in Romans 12, chapter 12, where he says, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So first, Paul calls us to be in a joyful spirit that is rooted in the hope that every Christian ought to have. But then immediately following that, he commands patience when facing afflictions. And the truth is, there is a false gospel that is going around in the church today that argues that Christians ought to live a joyful life because once God is on our side, all will be well. All you will know is a life of blessing and victory. And the Bible categorically rejects that teaching. This verse, as well as many other verses in the Bible, make it clear that even after you become a Christian, that you ought to expect hardships and suffering. That it is in the midst of that suffering and hardship that you will often be called to experience the joy of the Lord. And yet, and yet, I worry that in making such a sharp distinction between joy and happiness, something can also be lost. Um, specifically, I mean that it could have the unintended consequence of making joy actually seem weaker, not stronger than happiness. In other words, we can picture joy as being something so otherworldly, buried so deeply within our hearts that it's hard to even know what Christian joy is supposed to look like on the outside. I think it would be hard to convince anyone that these are faces of joy. Would you agree? I, I, apologies to anyone who's listening to this sermon on podcast. I try not to do anything that is absolutely dependent on a visual because I know some people listen to the sermon outside this room, but download the slides on our church website. You can see what we're talking about here, okay? Um, someone can try to make a defense for this and say, well, okay. These are not happy faces, but they're joyful faces. Uh, the joy is buried deep inside their hearts. It's, it's buried deep, 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 deep down inside their hearts. It's buried so deep down that you cannot see any evidence at all in their faces. In fact, you need eyes of faith to see their joy. Because with natural eyes, you cannot see the joy. But I want to argue, if someone actually has joy, shouldn't there be some evidence of it outwardly, of what it ought to look like? If Christians are supposed to be joyful, shouldn't they look happier? I think it's a valid question. 
In other words, this is what I'm actually trying to say here, is I would actually argue that the outward expression of joy and happiness will oftentimes be pretty hard to tell apart. And then if that's the case, how much joy are Christians really experiencing in their lives? Dallas Willard writes, how many people are radically and permanently repelled from the way by Christians who are unfeeling, stiff, unapproachable, boringly lifeless, obsessive, and dissatisfied? Yet such Christians are everywhere. And what they are missing is the wholesome liveliness springing from a balanced vitality within the freedom of God's loving rule. I believe that if joy is truly in our heart, it ought to be visible on our face. This is where joy and happiness actually often meet at least outwardly looking the same. It is a lightness in the spirit, a skip in our step, a heart filled with dancing, a delight that puts a smile on our face. I think in that sense, joy and happiness ought to look very similar. So then how is Christian joy to be distinguished from worldly happiness or pleasure or desire? For that, I want to point you to the works of C.S. Lewis for a little bit here. Um, Lewis as well would argue that in many ways, happiness and joy and desire are kind of hard to tell apart in a lot of ways. But there are also some key distinctions. Lewis wrote many books, but the only book that he considered his autobiography was a book called Surprised by Joy. And the reason why he entitled his autobiography Surprised by Joy is because in it he basically says, my entire journey of becoming a Christian could be summarized as a search for joy. A search for joy. During his years as an atheist, he looked for that joy everywhere. And he indulged in various worldly pleasures. But he said, every time that I thought this could lead to joy, it only led to pleasure. It's kind of a, and this is, this is the point that I think has to be acknowledged even by Christians. Is what he said was this. The pleasure was real. He was not going to deny it. The pleasure was real. But what he said was at the end of that pleasure was somehow this feeling of being left a little emptier than before the quest. He has this lovely illustration of it by saying like this. He felt like it was like a group of hounds on the scent of its prey. And when they had finally cornered the prey and the chase had ended, the scent had changed and they discovered they were pursuing the wrong animal. 
when we chase after the pleasures of this world, there is a sense in our hearts that whenever we experience those pleasures, that we have this inner testimony that these things will never satisfy the ultimate longings in my soul. In an unpublished letter that Lewis wrote to this woman named Mrs. Ellis in 1945, we don't even know who this woman is, but this letter was discovered years later, stuck in the pages of a used book. He wrote how he tried to find joy in so many things in his life experience when he was a non-Christian, even just listening to a beautiful piece of music. But he said every time that he thought that he would find joy, he was always let down because all it was was pleasure. And in that letter to this woman, he wrote, it's like the disappointment of Jacob thinking that he married Rachel, but waking up the next morning to find Leah in his bedside. That's what he wrote. But then this is what Lewis said. When I finally encountered God, when I for the first time encountered true joy, the opposite happened. I longed for even more of it. I was not repelled by it. I longed for even more of it because something saying in my heart that this, Lewis, is what you have been searching for all of your life. And you have found it. And as Lewis came to realize, God alone is the source of true joy. This is why Lewis believed that joy was so central, not only to his testimony, but to the testimony of any true believer. Because the hallmark of a person who has finally found God is a heart filled with joy. Because it is the heart of someone who has finally found what he or she has always been looking for in seeking all of the pleasures that this world has to offer. Lewis is merely echoing what Jesus taught on the nature of joy. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his Joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. There is this immediate recognition by this person that he has found what he has been desperately searching for in his life. And now that he has found it, it is with great joy that he willingly sells everything else in order to gain the kingdom of God. The Psalms are filled with affirming this truth, that true joy comes out of an encounter with the living God. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Psalm 28, verse 6, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. My heart leaps for joy and with my song, I praise him. 
Psalm 65, verse 8. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders. Where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. And lastly, Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. All of these psalms and many others reveal that true joy comes from encountering the living God and realizing that in that encounter is the testimony of the soul that says, this is what I have been looking for all my life. Every time I thought I found it, all I found was pleasure. All I found was a fleeting happiness. But when I met God, I found a lasting joy. I want to take that and apply it now to the Christmas story. Because if we think about it, it makes total sense then why joy is such a central part of the Christmas narrative. Because it is the story of how our deepest longings in our heart have been met through the birth of this baby, Jesus Christ, born to be our Savior and offering us the hope of eternal life. In Luke chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, it says this, So Joseph also went up from the house, from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. I've alluded to this in several messages recently. But what stirred so much hope and joy in the heart of these Jews as they heard this message was the fact that for centuries they had been living under flawed and even outright wicked leadership that led to people down disastrous paths for the nation of Israel. And the message was given to these shepherds that night that their long-awaited Messiah, prophesied by their prophets, had finally been born in their generation. The child that was born that day would be the fulfillment of everything that God had promised them. A worthy king who would sit on David's throne and serve his people rather than using and abusing them for their own gain. A worthy prophet in the tradition of Elijah who would speak with the authority of God. A worthy priest who would stand in the gap on behalf of the people. A worthy shepherd who would lead his people back to God and restore everything 
that was broken by sin and rebellion. And so the angels comforted these shepherds who were obviously scared out of their minds. And they reassured them that this was not an occasion for fear, but for great joy, not only for them, but for the whole world. As they say, rejoice, your Savior, the only one who can save your soul, has been born this day. Another aspect of this Christmas story that ought to stir great joy and wonder in our hearts is because it shows the depth of humility that God would display in saving his people. No one could imagine that the long-awaited Messiah, the promised anointed one, would be none other than God himself, Jesus, the Son of God. And no one could imagine how humbly he would come into this world. Even though he was God's own son, he would not be born into royalty in a palace. He would be born to a poor carpenter's family that came from the town of Nazareth that was so utterly insignificant that it is never mentioned once in the Old Testament. That's how unimportant Nazareth was. Look more closely at verse 12. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. The angel is basically saying, this is how you can find this kid when you go to Bethlehem and look for him. Is look for the kid in a manger. And you think, like, why is that a sign? The picture of mangers that we see today looks like these beautifully crafted wooden bassinets. Propped up on legs, which look like they ought to be in Pottery Barn or Crate and Barrel or Williams and Sonoma or something, right? And they're always located in these beautiful wooden barns. But if you heard my Luke series, you know that historically it's not like that. These aren't like the beautiful Amish barns that you see in Pennsylvania. Historians tell us that in those days, animals were kept in caves. Not only that, but a manger is actually a feeding trough. And I don't think that's what feeding troughs looked like in those days. Historians that done the archaeological digging tell us that the most common way to feed an animal in a cave was just to dig a furrow in the rock floor and then throw the slop in there and let the animals eat that in that hole that you dug. So get rid of this bassinet. (laughs) Clear away that straw and picture a pit and then picture a baby being placed in that pit. And that is far more historically accurate than this thing. It's not the kind of place that any loving mother would place a child that was literally just born that day. A day-old infant placed in a trench in a cave floor. But that is why it was a sign. The angels tell the shepherds, 
listen, go to Bethlehem. It's going to be the only baby sitting in a trough. Because no other mother in her right mind would do that to a child. So why did Mary do it? Because she had no choice. That was the only room given to her that day. What an awesome sign of the deep suffering and humiliation that Jesus would experience in his life. This would only be the beginning of an entire life filled with heartbreak and pain that Jesus would endure so that he could experience everything that you and I go through in this life. He would not be spared any of it by his heavenly Father. But he would be required to feel it all so that he could know what we suffer in this life. I apologize, this next quote is a bit long, but I think it so beautifully captures the wonder of the Christmas story. Paul Tripp writes, The beautiful world that God had created was now broken and groaning. The direct result of the rebellion of the ones God had made in his own image. The evidence of its brokenness was everywhere. From the inner recesses of the hearts of people, to violence and corruption of government, to the existence of plagues and diseases. Sure, there was beauty still to be seen, but the whole world groaned under the weight of its brokenness. It would have been just for God to stay his distance, to let the world quake and groan. But one of the gorgeous mysteries of God's sovereign grace, he looked on his broken, rebellious world with eyes of mercy. His response would not be condemnation and judgment. His response would not be a meeting out of justice. Rather, his response would be intervention and rescue. He would do in grace what the law could never do. He would do in grace what we could never do for ourselves. God would take on human flesh and invade his sin-broken world with his wisdom, power, glory, and grace. But he wouldn't descend to a palace. Instead, the Lord Almighty, the creator, the sovereign king over all things would humble himself and take on the form of a servant He would live on our behalf the life we could never live. He would willingly die the death that you and I deserve to die. And he would rise from his tomb as the conqueror of sin and death. He would suffer every single day of his life so that he could with his life give grace to rebels, extend love to those who would deny his existence, impart wisdom to those who think they know better and extend forgiveness to everyone who seeks him. His coming stands as an affirmation that he will not relent. He will not be satisfied until sin and suffering are no more, and we are like him, dwelling with him in unity, peace, and harmony forever and ever. This is why joy is the only natural response to the Christmas story. 
me just close with one final aspect of joy that C.S. Lewis draws out. He argues that every experience of joy that he's ever had carries with it a characteristic stab, a pain, an inconsolable longing. And the reason that he gave for that is that every experience of joy that he has had in this world, in this life, was only a glimpse, only a taste of what God has promised to us. And so even in our joy, we long for more. What are the moments that you have felt the joy of the Lord in your life? when I thought about it in my own life, I thought about certain moments of just white-hot worship with the people of God, just bathed in the music and in the lyrics and feeling so overwhelmed with the goodness of God as we were singing praises to Him. That was a, those were some tremendous moments of experiencing joy. And then I also thought about some sweet moments of fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes crying together, sometimes laughing together, sharing our lives together. I also thought about mission trips that I had been on and the deep joy of the Lord that I experienced, seeing the power of the gospel at work in some of the most broken and needy places around the world and seeing the love of Christ melt people's hearts, people who were so desperate and so needy of help. But the truth is, every one of those experiences is incomplete. They are not whole. They are imperfect. They are only glimpses of the full promise of God to restore all things, to undo that which has been broken by sin. And it's the same with the joy of our celebration of Christmas. As wonderful as it is to celebrate the truth that Jesus came into our world to die for our sins, we also long for his second coming, when he will come as a conquering king to restore the kingdom of God fully and perfectly. This is a picture of joy, too. It's the picture of a father hugging his son. The father in that picture is Navy Senior Chief Michael Forehand. And this picture was just taken a couple months ago on September 17th of this year. Forehand had been deployed to Iraq in April. And he wasn't expected back to finish his tour of duty until spring of next year. But he was given an unexpected two-week leave to see his family. And so they set up this surprise homecoming for his 11-year-old son, Gabriel. And so all the kids in the middle school were gathered in the cafeteria, and they needed to make up a reason for why they were there and why there were so many journalists with cameras there. 
And so they told the kids that the local reporters were doing a story about school lunches. <laughs> How gullible kids are, right? And then they called Forhan's son Gabriel up because they told him, you're going to be the first one that the reporters interview to ask about the school lunches. And then they sprung the surprise on him. And rather than me telling you how it happened, I just want to show you just a couple-minute video to let you see with your own eyes what transpired that day. This is a picture of Gabriel, the moment that the announcer told him that his father was at the back of the cafeteria. And you couldn't see this perspective in the video that I just showed you. But I want you to notice the expression on his face. If I only showed you this picture without any context, it's hard to know whether he's happy or he's sad, isn't it? And the same could be said of this picture, of Gabriel tightly grabbing his father. It's, if you had no context, didn't know the story, it would actually be hard to tell whether he's overwhelmed with joy or overwhelmed with grief. That letter that I told you about that C.S. Lewis wrote to this Mrs. Ellis, in that same letter, Lewis makes this interesting comment on joy. He says, in my intense feelings of joy in my life, I have found it hard to tell the difference between intense joy and intense sorrow. And in a way you say, how in the world could that be true? (laughs) But I think he has an insight there. And it is because both of those are strong emotions that tap into the deepest longings of the human soul. And it's interesting that I think that's also why some of our deepest, in some of our deepest moments of joy, we find ourselves crying. In that moment that Gabriel got the news, he must have been thinking, I want to see my father more than anything else in this world. And you're telling me he's in this room with me right now but I'm not supposed to see him for another six months. Are you playing a trick on me? And when he finds out that, he's, that it is in fact true, he is just overwhelmed with these emotions that the deepest longing of his heart has finally come true. St. Augustine famously said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. The joy that we find in this life will not be complete until we find ourselves with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. 
Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must make it the main objective of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. Jesus comforts his own disciples in John 14, run through six with these words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. In a way, this is the entire quest of humanity, is the quest for happiness. All of us are in search of this elusive goal of happiness. And yet, what Scripture would argue is what you're really looking for is an everlasting joy, a joy that God alone could satisfy. The pleasures of this world will always somehow leave you feeling a little deceived, a little robbed, a little emptier. But when you meet the true living God, you will finally find rest for a restless soul that is searching for the answers in this life. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So as we reflect on this Christmas message, I hope that you will understand the awesome wonder of this story, that the God of the universe would send his only son that he loves more than anything in this world to enter our world, not under the privilege of royalty, but would throw him in a cave meant for animals, in a ditch in a ground, under the care of a teenage girl and a poor carpenter. And that would be the beginning of a life for this man of many sorrows who would know only pain. And the amazing thing is that God did all of that because of his love for you and I. And it's a wonder that the familiarity of this story could numb our hearts to the power and the wonder of it. How great is the love of our God that he would do this for us. Jesus, pray for a few minutes, and then our worship team will lead us.
in a time of closing singing. Let's pray.